Can you think of any reasons why it wouldn't be good for people to live really close together in an apocalyptic situation? Well, if you have any people that you don't like that uh, live near you, <laughs> they could be put, hard. Yeah, they might try to. They might just because like just for uh, the reason because they really don't like you or something like that. They might try to um take you and the rest of your faction out or mm-hmm. just you and then take all your supplies. Hello, beloved survivors. Yeah, that's interesting. The My name that, like, is Autumn Brown and this is How to Survive the End of the World. The other voice you're like hearing there is my 11-year-old kid, Finn. Long before COVID-19, Finn and I started talking about surviving an apocalypse. So, something else that I want to do later on is mm-hmm. that I want to sort of like make a list of like things that um, you should have in, in like pre- preparation for an apocalypse. Oh, that's a really good idea. Like, like in your home? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, um... A few months ago, we started planning a mini-series for this show in which we dive deep into disaster and crisis survival with a focus on marginalized communities and marginalized voices. Our goal is to offer lessons, coaching, and ideas on the hard skills of survival, as well as space to have the hard conversations about the issues we can anticipate we will face, access to food, water, shelter, protection, and medical care. Some episodes will also look at what we preserve and retain under rapidly changing and unpredictable conditions. And then COVID-19 hit, and we realized we can't move forward with our series until we address this current scary-ass moment. And so this episode is a conversation I had last week with the amazing Marie's Mitchell Brody. Our conversation centers on the necessary work of social distancing, sheltering in place, and self-quarantine as an act of community care during the pandemic. We discuss in depth the risks of the state's response to the pandemic, the inequities embedded in our systems and structures, as well as the solutions our communities are already creating as we lean into practices of mutual aid and networks of care. This theme of mutual aid networks of care, and creating new worlds in the shell of the old is one that will show up again and again throughout the miniseries as we dive deep into lessons that come from those who have already been surviving the harsh reality of unjust systems. Those who survive on the margins of our society, people of color and indigenous folks, disabled and chronically ill folks, trans and non-binary, gender non-conforming folks and queer folks, all of whom have enormous wisdom for the current moment. As you might remember, my co-host and sister Adrian is on sabbatical, so for much of this series, I'll be flying solo. But she and I did have a chance to talk last week, and we'll probably share that conversation as a special episode within the series. For now, please find some joy and comfort in my conversation with Marie's Mitchell Brody. All right. I am so excited to welcome to the show one of my best friends on earth and one of the people that I look to for leadership, for um, political thought partnership, for inspiration, basically at all times of my life, but especially in hard times. Um, Marie's Mitchell Brody is um, longtime New York City-based organizer, a radical social worker. Marie's has been active in movements for healing justice, sex worker organizing, racial justice, economic justice for over 20 years. Um, Marie's was part of the Rock Dove Collective with me back in the day, and we've done healing justice organizing work at the local and national level together for many years. Um, and Marie's is currently um, runs the Sex Worker Giving Circle at the Third Wave Fund, which is the first and only sex worker-led fund housed at a U.S. foundation. Um, 
basically they're like a total badass and everyone should follow them on Instagram. Marise, is there anything that you want to like also say about yourself and how badass you are? Oh man, I wish we were in person so you could see the cheesy grin on my face right now. Um, I want to let everyone on this podcast know that one of the things I'm most sad about in this moment was that I was going to get to go see Autumn this next weekend. So this is a good way to, you know, have a second best option. It's really an honor to get to be on your show and to get to be brought in to share and amplify some things that I've learned. Um, And a lot of what I've learned sort of in relationship with you and in our communities. So um, yeah, I guess I'd also just say that I'm here very much in a personal capacity, right? Like from what I know as a disabled and chronically ill person, from what I've learned over the years as a social worker, from what I know from having a lot of disabled and chronically ill people, many queer and trans, mostly Black, Indigenous, and people of color, who've taught me a lot about what it means to take care of each other in tough times. Um, and just want to honor that, that as a white person with some class privilege, like this moment is one where I'm going to show up with all the privileges that I have to help our people get it through and to give credit to the people who've come before me and alongside me in sharing what we know. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, Well, so we have a lot to try to work through. Um, As our listeners already know, this episode is really about um, sheltering in place and community care. Uh, a conversation that we were planning to have as a part of the Apocalypse Survival mini-series anyway, and then coronavirus happened. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a lot of questions that we're going to cover over the course of this conversation. Um, Everything from thinking about what community care looks like under uh, quarantine conditions to, you know, some overarching... um, analysis that we need to bear in mind about the way the system is already structured and uh, what are the possible dangers and how do we mitigate against them uh, Mm -hmm. given the conditions that we're operating in. But we wanted to, I wanted to start with a zoomed in look at um, your experience, Marise. Um, You live in Brooklyn, New York, and you are right there in the epicenter of the pandemic playing out here in the U.S. And I just wanted to start by asking you what it's like to be living in New York right now. Yeah, thanks. Um, You know, for me, one thing that I'll say is that honestly, this whole thing has been like watching a tidal wave come in in slow motion, right? Like I've been um, social distancing for three weeks now. Um, I've left my apartment twice in the past 14 days for someone with bad asthma and a lot of immune things going on. I'm at pretty elevated risk. Um, Mm -hmm. And I've been paying attention to what the epidemiologists and activists from other places around the world in places like Italy and China were saying about what was coming. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there's been this tremendous anxiety for me and I'm an anxious person. Let's just be real. Like I'm a, I'm a, I'm a trauma BB, right? Like I know that my hypervigilance means that my loved ones a lot are like, yeah, that sounds rough and that could be really scary. And it's probably not going to be that way. So I just want to name this. But I think that unfortunately I saw it coming and it's mm-hmm. the worst thing to be right about. Right. So it's been Mm -hmm. like seeing that tidal wave, seeing the signs of, you know, the water starting to pull back and like trying to run up and down the beach and watching people sort of stay sunbathing or playing in the sand or maybe they start like moving away a little bit, but not fast enough. (laughs) Right. Right. It's been so terrifying. Right. So now here in New York, where the response of the mayor was and the governor but especially the mayor, I think, was for weeks to say, oh, you know, like, slow it down, stay at home if you can, wash your hands, don't go anywhere if you're feeling sick. 
And that's been so clearly not the right information to give, even though I know he's been scared about the economic impacts, right? Like oh, yeah. the economic impacts are going to be huge. But the reality is, is that we know that if you're asymptomatic, you can still transmit it. That we know that there's no safe way to be gathered with each other right now. Mm-hmm. And so that's been really hard. I haven't been outside very much, right? But I, and that's in part because I haven't had N95 masks, which are the only masks that, um, besides homemade ones, which we can talk about a little bit later, mm-hmm. um, that really help prevent the virus from getting in. And But what I've heard is that the streets are really much more deserted now, that you can just walk down the middle of the streets in Manhattan, that you mm. that grocery stores more and more are now setting up lines where it's you know socially distanced and it's been strange because there's been some of us who've been really really very very serious about this and then other folks and i think that some of this also has to do with a lack of outreach in the languages that people speak and a lack of information being shared in the languages that people speak Uh right i i think that there's a huge disparity around that but where people have sort of been treating it like an excuse to like have fun and go out to bars and things like that as soon as the the bar and restaurant closure happened a lot of that changed Um, yeah so i think it's been also just a strange time in terms of everything being sold out these everyday things you know you haven't been able to get hand sanitizer anywhere in the city for weeks yes yeah right like not for love or money i've been making my own and distributing it so it's been real it's been really and you know i'm from brooklyn right like i've seen my city go through things like 9-11 like you know sandy this is not the first disaster that we've been through but it's the first that looks this way. Um, and that's Right, that slow it. unfolding. Yeah, where you know what's coming, but you can't do, it's a collective problem. It's not an individual thing. And the issue is with the state, you know, not doing things like providing people with a basic income, right? If mm-hmm. folks had $2,000 a month at the jump, like a couple of weeks ago, people are trying to work if they don't have to. Right. (laughs) Right. Like, it's not like people, like, especially a week ago, right? Like, maybe two weeks ago, people didn't get it. But a week ago, everybody got it. Anybody who was still going to work was doing that because they had no other way to survive. Right. And so I think we need to recognize that it's about state failure more than it is about individual dismissing of things at this point. Well, yeah. And let's talk about the state. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about the state um, <laughs> because I think one of the one of the one of the things that I'm noticing and that I know you've already been having conversations about as well is the relationship between the historical relationship between the state and um, the activity of quarantine. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to, I feel like before we go any further into conversation about social distancing and quarantine protocols and what people should and shouldn't be doing, it might be useful to ground that conversation mm-hmm. in a recognition of what is potentially dangerous about state responses to pandemics like these um, in terms of both extremes that we both the extreme that we have witnessed already and some of the extremes that we may witness that might be coming our way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think even just to, to sort of start from a place of things being rooted in history, to me, it feels really, really important to name that the state has a robust history of using quarantine and medicalized violence against people most impacted by oppression since mm-hmm. its founding, right? Like indigenous people, enslaved Africans and their descendants, black folks throughout history, Latinx folks, people of color, Jews, all kinds of people migrating here, sex workers, drug users, queer and trans people, incarcerated people, people with HIV, right? Mm-hmm. Like medicalized violence and quarantine right like saying you can't go anywhere because we consider you to be a vector of disease yes right that is 
a deep source of trauma and a deep source of violence. And at the same time as those things have been done against us or other folks who've experienced violence of that kind, it's really something where the state is also extracting wealth that from people's bodies and lives, right? That, While quarantining them. Right. And so I think, and businesses, right? This is not, when I say the state, I'm also thinking about the ways that it allows for largely white, Christian, cis, straight men to make wealth off of crisis and off of medical disaster, right? Mm-hmm. And that wealth always comes from somewhere. So I, I think that we can't understand this moment outside of a critique of capitalism and outside of, and particularly racial capitalism and outside of a critique of state violence. So I think in terms of, if you're somebody who's carrying generational direct trauma related to this, that's the idea that freedom of movement is gonna be further criminalized is a terrifying one. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's absolutely gonna be used as a tool of state control. That doesn't also mean that we shouldn't find ways to socially distance and take care of each other, but that we can do that in a way that's aligned with our politics and our principles rather than is, you know, leaning back on the state and its control right now. So, yeah, I think there's a couple of things in terms of like thinking about the state and its danger, right? There's there's this whole category of like inaction and insufficient action and downplaying at risk, right? And then mm-hmm. on the other hand, the kinds of increased surveillance and policing that we're seeing in places where folks are getting stay-at-home orders, right? Where, you know, all of these things, being out in public becomes what's thought of as like a thought crime, basically, right? Like, There's no, so in the way that actions are criminalized related to loitering for the purposes of prostitution, for example, where they have to say, oh, you're standing on this corner or waving your hand because you want to, you know, get clients because you're a sex worker. In the same way, they're saying, oh, you're walking up and down the block or you're sitting on your soup, not because you're getting exercise or you're taking a break before you go to the store or you're avoiding someone who's walking by you too closely, it's because you're not paying attention to the order. And for people who are already targeted for policing, we know that this is going to look different for everybody. We know that the ways it's going to play out are going to be, you know, different for different people. Um, Right. And so then I think also there's this category of insufficient action and, and inaction, right? Where literally four months our governments have known. And when I say governments, I mean both federal, state, local, have known what was coming, right? There should have been right. stockpiles. There should have been more production of the necessary medical equipment. Even the federal reserves of, of what we have, it meets like about 1% of what the need will be, right? With some months, folks could have been prepared. Right. And misinformation was being spread, not just on in New York with the mayor, but on the federal level. And it's mm. made coll- what is actually about collective action into personal responsibility. You have to stay home and you can't get a mask and you can't do all of these things because you have to stay home. You know, you can't get a mask. You can't you know, work your job. You can't do any of these things. You can't go on a date because we didn't take action. And so now this is about you staying home and keeping people safe. It's not to say that we wouldn't have had to socially distance or stay at home, but it's that had actions been taken, it would not be at this point. And so that feels like a really important moment to hold. Well, and I really appreciate that you're making that connection between um, like collective versus individual responsibility and the way that that narrative is playing out in the media right now. And just the way that that narrative becomes like a, 
the narrative of individual and personal responsibility becomes this place that we default to. Um, even though it's, it can be so easily perceived and seen that the actual failure was on the part of our government to actually mm-hmm. communicate the information that people needed in the time that they needed it. Mm-hmm. And that like, you know, only because things have reached the point that they've reached now is there, uh, and only because we already live inside of a, you know, political environment that very much relies on a narrative of personal responsibility to keep people isolated from mm-hmm. one another. Are we looking at a scenario where people are feeling like they are blaming each other or blaming themselves or, you know, um, defaulting to really xenophobic narratives? Like I literally saw someone who is not a friend, but just someone that I am connected to on social media who recently came out um, with a post about how she is infected with the virus she's really really sick and she feels so regretful about all the ways that she didn't um take seriously what the protocols were or the warnings and then in the list of things that she feels guilty about she included i feel guilty about all of the single use um plastics that i have consumed from asian (gasps) countries And I was just like, literally, what the fuck is this doing in this list? Right? Like, (laughs) that is just, it is just like, so clearly like a xenophobic response to the fact that she is now sick, you know, and like both falling into this idea of like, like somehow her personal choices (laughs) about like what she spends money on, but specifically choosing to spend money on products from Asia is somehow related to her being sick. It was just like such a distortion, such a clear distortion of reality. Yeah. Um, and, and like, that is the kind of, that is also the kind of like subtle spread of a xenophobic response mm-hmm. to the pandemic where no one, no one, and I was like looking at her comments and noticing that like no one, no one like commented on or called out the fact that she specifically referred to products from Asian countries as a part of the problem. Right. And I I think that there's this, this thing happening right now, you know, which often happens in response to trauma, where we need to believe that the world is fair somehow right and that there are things that we can do and i say trauma particularly in the u.s context right that there are Mm -hmm. things that we can do that if we do them in the future they will keep us safe from the trauma happening again and this is there are absolutely things that we can do to help reduce our risk for getting COVID, right depending where you are all of those things and for transmitting it but because this desire to have like, here's a fail safe method, it's a really dangerous place for xenophobia and racism to work its way in, right? I so deeply hoped after 9-11 as somebody who went to high school four blocks away from there, that after this terrible thing happened, that we would understand that our actions across the world as an empire had repercussions, right? That terrible things would happen to us if we did terrible things to other people. Mm -hmm. And instead of that being a moment where our trauma turned into transformation, that was a moment, and for some of it, it was, right? But for others of us and for the country as a whole, that trauma was capitalized upon to further empire, right? And- Right, right. I I think that that's something we have to be really wary of in this moment is, is to not let this be a time where even though we have to be physically apart from each other, we become isolationist, whether that's in our interpersonal interactions or as a country. We'll be back with Marie's in a minute, but first, I'm very excited to share with you the first bit of listener audio we made a call for recently. We asked you to record your strategies for intimacy and connection to other humans during this time of social distancing. And lucky for us, you responded. The first voice you'll hear is Ellie Grayziger, followed by Mia Rotondo. 
For me, reading out loud to loved ones is such an intimate and connective experience. And so I'll be along with um, a sweetheart of mine. We are going to record ourselves on Instagram Live reading stories out loud that pertain to the times um, from Octavia's Brood, from Braiding Sweetgrass, um, and sharing those with loved ones that we can't see physically um, so that they can hear our voices and hear these stories that need to be amplified right now. Hi, dears. Uh, This is Mia, and I would say, you know, texting, Zooming, everybody's doing all the things, but my favorite is um, just the occasional naughty Marco Polo, which is a little app where you can leave little video messages for a dear one, and that's been doing it for me, and to be honest, I'm really learning a lot about the folks that I'm dating throughout all this, so like a lot a lot so yeah love you thank you so much ellie and mia for sending us your voices and it's not too late for the rest of you to send us something what are your strategies for intimacy and connection to other humans during this time of social distancing let us know by recording audio into the voice memo app on your phone and then emailing it to us at howtosurvivepod at gmail.com Okay, let's get back to my conversation with Marie's. So it was, I think, a week and a half ago that you and Kate Werning sat down and recorded that special intro to the um, episode on the Healing Justice podcast um, highlighting the webinar on the coronavirus that J.D. Davids and and, and company organized. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember in that intro, you said, right now, community care looks like canceling everything. And, um, and there are a couple of things I was wondering if you could like talk about in relationship to that statement. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. curious to know, like one, just what you've noticed in the week and a half mm-hmm. since, <laughs> you know, you yeah. talked about that tidal wave. And I'm just curious to notice like, what you've noticed in that last week and a half as the wave has hit and people are finally canceling everything. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was also, you know, wanting to talk about this idea of like slowing community spread to keep more people safe and how, you know, how in a way we're talking about a metadata process Mm-hmm. Right. That it's no longer about like, how do I keep myself safe from right. this virus, but rather operating under the assumption that, you know, somewhere between 40 to 70 percent of us are going to contract the right. virus at some point over the next year. We're actually talking about a meta process of slowing the spread, flattening the curve. And that is really challenge. It's a challenging ask of a society mm-hmm. that is so oriented to, towards people's individual desires. Right. And so I'm, I'm curious to know like what you're noticing also about like what is challenging to people about staying home and how mm-hmm. as a community do we mitigate that challenge? Yeah. And thank you for framing it that way, because I do think that that click that moment for people of, oh, it's not just about my individual health. It's about making sure that those of us who will need care can get it at times and in ways where hospitals aren't overflowing. Something that I want to start and just be really real about and I'm sorry if I tear up and you know what I'm not sorry if I tear up This this shit is scary as hell and sad as hell right is that in Italy elders and people with disabilities people who have respiratory problems people like me and people like my 72 year old mother and my 93 year old grandfather and all of us who have elders and people with chronic illnesses in our lives are being turned away from hospitals in Italy to die because they are doing war zone level triage in terms of who is most likely to survive. It is a fucking war zone. And so for me, thinking about the trauma of what that will be like 
is part of where my urgency came from. Mm. And we need to do everything we can to minimize that level of grief and that level of trauma because we don't subscribe to a war zone mentality when it comes to our people, right? What we on the radical left subscribe to is actually that we center people who most need support, who are most yes. impacted by oppression. Mm-hmm. And and so that for me has been a, a, a real sort of rallying, uh, this awareness has been really important for me. So in thinking about canceling everything, a lot of people have been canceling things, right? Great. Like, good job, everybody. Really good, right? <laughs> like, I feel so grateful to have heard from people in London and in Tucson and all over, over the country about how the podcast and the document that I created helped people to make those decisions and especially to advocate with their bosses, right? To provide just clear information about how this has to happen about how, no, it can't just be if you're feeling sick, don't go to the dance class, right? But Mm -hmm. that we need to, right? And I think that there's also been a lot of clarity around the need to organize, to respond to people who are going through that economic loss, right? Two of my brothers are now without work, you know, and these are people who have always worked, but one of my brothers is a DJ and one of my brothers is a substitute teacher. And these are folks who like normally have comfortable middle-class lives. Right. Right. And so I think that there's also something to name in this moment where people who are not used to having to do without are having to get really creative about what this moment looks like, right? And for folks who have done without, folks are even more precarious in this moment. And so what I'll also say though, is that folks have been getting really creative in in thinking through what those things look like. And I know we're gonna talk a little bit more later about mutual aid, so I won't go into it too much, but just Mm -hmm. that's been a source of a lot of support for me and like emotional support to know that there's ways that we're going to get it through, even if the state fails us. Right. Right. Um, And I think that the state failure has become really clear. And so there's been a lot of organizing around pushing the state to address these issues. I think I've been really impressed with Bernie Sanders's response and his plan, you know, and his proposal that every person get, $2,000 a month, it might be household, I'm not sure, but $2,000 a month for the the duration. These two checks of $1,000 each, yes, they're something. They're better than nothing, but they're not nearly enough. Right. Um, So I think that that feels important. And then also just like challenges for how to go about this. For a lot of disabled people, shit was already hard, right? Like I've been using the grocery delivery service Instacart for years because right. I, can't, I can't carry groceries, right? right? Like, so for me now, like those of us who've been using these services are like, okay, cool. So I have to wait a week to get this delivery and okay, cool. It's suggesting that I get bananas as a substitute. And this really happened to me that I get bananas as a substitute for all the things that were sold out, which included tofu, bread, oh. veggie burgers, ah. like bananas or like, veggie I guess burgers. I a pack a, a pot of bananas for every item that was sold. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, look, bananas are great. Bananas are a great thing to be buying right now, but shit, I do not need that many bananas. I oh. like just to say that, like, if you're not in a place yet where this is happening, like, get ready. It will. Um, seriously (laughs) (laughs) I just stocked up on I definitely just did the stocking up on two weeks of groceries and I found that it immediately settled my nervous system yeah yeah and I think two weeks or even you know like two weeks plus some like extra rice and beans and like some extra veggies to freeze if you need them like those to me like be reasonable you don't need to like stock up so much because that's the other thing that's challenging too is that for working class people, like buying a lot of supplies in bulk is not an option. 
for a right. lot of folks. Like right. lots of my loved ones only go to the grocery store every like go to the grocery store every few days because you only have enough to buy something for that day or right. for the next few days, right? right? You can't buy the three bag three big things of toilet paper. You can only get the one like small pack and you're using a sheet or two at a time. So that's hard too is that like it's not an option to go for the next two weeks. And then I think for those of us living in cities, right? Like New York where we don't have balconies or, you know, a backyard where we can't just like walk out of our house, but have to walk through a lobby where hundreds of other people are walking through. Uh There's much more of a risk, right? A lot of people like don't have cars that we can drive to a park. We can't grow food in our backyards. Right. So like, that's really hard. And then there's also like, for me, I'm Polly. I live with one partner. I like am deeply in love with my partner of four years who lives 20 minutes away, but we can't share space. I haven't touched this person who I love in three weeks. And I think that like, it's so hard. I mean, you know how much I love this person, right? Like, I do. I'm like, oh, honey, I didn't know it's been that long. <laughs> it's been so long. It's not okay. You know? It's not okay. And I think just for queer folks in general, right? Like thinking about even like how much you and I snuggle, right? Like yeah. for anyone who isn't in a traditional nuclear family, right? Like people who have to send their kids back and forth between different homes, like shit like that. That's all. Totally a big piece. And so our families are like chosen and diffuse and only being able to touch the people you cohabit with feels impossible. And some people are with their roommates, right? Where right. It's not right. like you're touching those people. Like, maybe <laughs> yeah. you all- Depending on the nature of the relationship, for sure. Sure, right. Like <laughs> here for roommates snuggling or fucking or however it is that you get through this time, right? Right. And like- Maybe you were already having issues, like knowing a lot of people who are older, who live with roommates. Like I, we have a friend who lives in a one bedroom apartment, who is an elder, who lives there with their partner and another person um, in the living room, right? Like, because it's so expensive here. So like yeah. navigating social distancing when we're in small apartments, like where they're very expensive, where like many of us spend 50 or more percent of our income on rent. That shit is wild. And so I could go on and on, but in terms of how we mitigate those challenges, I think that there's been some really beautiful things happening in terms of connecting across distance, right? Like ways of mutual aid that look like offering people joy and connection. our friend Morgan Basakis, who's an incredible cultural creator and artist, um, has really been like put out this thing, and it was the first thing that brought tears of joy to my eyes. They they're an incredible performer, and they've been offering to send people songs. They've been singing every day, and they'll like call you up or DM you with a song that they make just for you. Oh my and, God, that's beautiful. It's incredible. And it's so gay, right? Like it's so. <laughs> that is, it is extremely gay. It's so yeah. beautiful. And, and thinking about like, so my brother, who's a part owner of this club in Brooklyn called Friends and Lovers, he's been so worried about his staff, right? And all the DJs and collectives who are mostly like working class folks of color who like my brother are from New York City, who believe in our city, who believe in keeping Brooklyn, Brooklyn, and who are all out of work. And so they've set up this thing where they have a Patreon now where all of their different DJ collectives are making different mixes for folks. And that money is being distributed for everybody, right? Dishwashers and bartenders and sound techs, you know. And I think that that kind of like, we're creative, we can do this. Like a rapper who I love, Cupcake De Freak, is taking fan calls periodically on Insta. You know, there's a Crip remote dance party that's happening tonight. Um, I just think that there's like, even just things like I posted on my Facebook and I was like, hey, I've been doing remote calls for, I don't know how long. I mean, (laughs) like as long as people, as organizers have been doing them. So yeah. if you have an issue, let me troubleshoot. I've like, helped, <laughs> right, right. you know, I've like helped people like a bunch of elders figure out how to use Zoom. 
like oh of course like, you have i fucking love you i love you too <laughs> but like listen i'm doing whatever the fuck i can with what i have and it's been cool in this moment to be clear about like how ready i feel even as i'm terrified right like mm-hmm knowing that we are ingenious and even just like thinking about how you and I that's been really present for me is how when you know Black Lives Matter was first getting off the ground and things were like really popping in Ferguson and we were like oh folks need to be doing healing justice practice spaces in a pop-up kind of way this is something we've done and oh people don't know how to like keep confidentiality in an intake in an improv space or how to like build room dividers. How can we share that? What can we offer of use yeah. in this moment? Yes. Right. It's, and I, I really appreciate all the ways that you, the fact that you keep kind of pointing back to this, like the, the readiness that's inherent in communities that have like or specifically organizers and movement building communities that have already been thinking through these questions right. Right. And then also the particular readiness and leadership that's available to us of people who are disabled and chronically mm-hmm. ill, who have already been, for a variety of reasons, having to practice something like social distancing. And I'm wondering, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but if there's <laughs> any other, like, you know, gems or um, lessons that you would like to highlight from the leadership of those who are disabled and chronically ill and or just pointing people to like, you know, if you want to be, be putting yourself in followership of those who are leading us right now, mm-hmm. like what what are the lessons, what are the gems and who should we be paying attention to? Right. And one thing I'll add in addition to paying attention to is that if it's accessible to you paying, right? Like, yes. You know, I think that, I think that this moment is terrifying for disabled and chronically ill people. And even just the cost, like the number of hours that I have spent in the last couple of weeks trying to order things like isopropyl alcohol so that I can make hand sanitizer so that that can be distributed to elders and disabled people in my building and in my neighborhood. Like the amount of labor and not just, you know, money that's going into this i'm not saying for me like if if you would like to make contributions please make them to disabled and and chronically ill trans and queer people of color like i'm doing okay right but (laughs) pay right pay the people sharing this with them so now that we have that little piece aside right Mm -hmm. is, is to say that so the first i think there are a couple examples that really come to mind um in terms of resources, certainly J.D. Davids and the Cranky Queer resources that those folks have been putting out. I should also mention that J.D. is one of the people who started um, doing mutual aid organizing in one of the neighborhoods I'm adjacent to. So there's been a lot of cool um, seeing that in real time happening, like on, mm-hmm. on Facebook, like what does it look like in practice? Um, and then I would also say our comrade Leah Lakshmi Piepsna Samarasinha's um half-assed disabled prepper guide has a yes. lot of resources. I was, you know, I, like all of us were like, Leah's got to be working on something. And then it came out and we we're like, yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> this time, what so. would Leah do? Right. And, and I do think that, that like also Leah comes out of community with sins invalid too in, in the Bay area. So I would really, like those are the folks whose leadership and there's been a lot of writing already. So I would also just say, you know, for me, I'm lucky that my day job at third wave is one that already has had disability justice in practice as a necessity. We work remotely things like anticipating that capacity is always going to shift. Right. So what does it look like? Something that I'm thinking about both for in my day job and in my personal organizing projects is what does a, best case scenario, a skeleton scenario, and a everything has to be canceled, but we have to do the very minimum scenario, right? So what are the work plans for those three things? And I think that we should probably always 
do plan our work in those ways. Right. right? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, what like, would it hey, be? Hey, that doesn't sound like a bad idea. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, you know? Um, and in this moment, that feels critically important. is to under- And to just trust that we are not going to be able to do the most that we can at this moment, right? Like, I am budgeting every day time to cry and to zone out, right? I'm budgeting oh. also... You know, I thought I had COVID-19 last week because my asthma response to being around so much bleach and dust was to have terribly, you know, to be coughing, to have an incredibly painful lungs and to have shortness of breath. And it took three days of a different protocol for it to be like, okay, maybe this isn't COVID-19, right? But it, it was terrifying, right? But like in that time... I had to start adjusting. Okay, like what is, I have to like try and get this money out the door. I have to try and, you know, get in touch with these groups to see how folks are hanging in there. I have to like write to my people so that they know what's going on, right? Right. And so it's like doing what we can and doing it with a vision of capacity that allows for both the impacts on our personal health, but also the collective trauma that we are going through in slow motion and in real time right now. Yes. Yeah. Like I, <clears throat> I really appreciated someone was spreading around a list written by, I don't know who of things that you don't need to accomplish during mm-hmm. social distancing. <laughs> right. And I think that that is, you know, I, I think that there is this real, like, um, you know, what is what there's this real question to me about like, what is the invitation of this moment? Yep. Mm-hmm. And I think the invitation of this moment is to slow down and actually turn to one another and connect and also connect back with our bodies, yep. not to like get done all the other things. I mean, in, in a way, it's like such an intensely, in, again, individualistic response to think like, ooh, if I can't go to work, how can I fill my time with other things that are self-optimizing? Right. And it's like, no, like <laughs> the time of the time of self-optimization is actually past. Yeah. Like now is the time of like, how do we get as deeply in our bodies as we can? How do we actually pay attention to our altruism response, which right. is really high under disaster conditions, you know? And you and I have talked about this. I, I talk about this all the time on this show that like the natural human response in under stress is to reach out, to cooperate, to connect, to mm-hmm. interweave ourselves with one another and hold each other. And like, the, everything that you were just describing about like how you're structuring your day is indicative of the fact that like that altruism response is fully intact. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, like, and, and so what we want, I, I really feel like, yeah, it's like, let's release those, the, whatever the conditioned responses are right. that have us thinking about how to continue um, pr- producing things during this time and actually turn towards how we care for one another. Um, I know that we don't have a lot of time left, but before we close, I wanted to like zoom back out a little bit um, on this, like taking more of a systemic Mm -hmm. view of what's happening. Um, And um, both a systemic view and also like thinking about like, visionary possibilities yeah and I'm thinking back to how you and I first met that mm-hmm. we met you know in 2000 2006 2007 in New York City and we met because we both had an interest in organizing and creating alternatives to how people access care inside of our healthcare system in the U.S recognizing at that time that the structures our society had in place were not designed to meet human needs. And I, I remember, and just in thinking about the trajectory of like the 15 years or whatever since then, mm-hmm. um, the, that like even with this controversial passing and inconsistent implementation of Obamacare, the system has changed very little and the cost of healthcare has only grown. And, and then now we have this like unfolding crisis with the coronavirus and the, as you were naming earlier, that the invitation to shelter in place, to stay home, to self-quarantine 
is about slowing community spread, is about flattening the curve so that our healthcare system does not get overwhelmed because we know that it will. Mm-hmm. And I would love to hear you talk a little bit about what this pandemic has unveiled about our health our healthcare system that maybe wasn't as obvious prior to something this stressful happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing that this brings up, and also before doing that, I just want to take a moment to say how grateful I am to be in sort of like ongoing conversation and collaboration with you and all of our comrades who have been doing this healing justice work for a minute now, like that this moment that that's that work, I think is like a critical piece of this. And so something that we've already always known, but that is like really grotesquely clear at this moment, I keep coming back to that word grotesque, right? Mm-hmm. Is that like the there are huge risks of privatized medicine, right? Like we know that governors right now are begging the federal government to allow them to collectively order masks and ventilators to reduce. It's not that these things don't exist. It's that there's supply chain issues in terms of getting them, right? And the contrast between the images coming out of countries where, yes, they do also have terrible things related to this pandemic, but where medical workers are wearing not just masks, but full hazmat suits. And and here, where a hospital in New York City distributed information to its nurses about how to make masks out of coffee filters and hairbands, right? Yep. Is totally, totally harrowing, and it's totally unnecessary. And I'm ang- like, I'm so angry, right? Because we know that frontline workers like nurses and doctors, but also, and especially orderlies and janitorial staff and intake folks, right? Their labor is the difference between us getting through this and not. And in addition yes. to res- restaurant workers and domestic workers and sanitation workers and transit workers, right? But like, it is so, those are our people who need to be most treasured right now. Mm-hmm. And instead, they're the people who are, are being told to make massive coffee filters. If you are someone who sews and has a sewing machine at home, you can absolutely find really good recipe, recipes, uh, patterns. <laughs> I mean, it is a recipe in it a is way, a recipe. right? Like, <laughs> it's a medicine of a kind, right? It is, for, yes. For yes. making masks at home. And yes, of course, they're not as good as N95s and they're not as good as surgical masks, but they are, they reduce large percentages of virus transmission in some hospitals and some places are asking for them and that you definitely can distribute them to disabled and chronically ill and elders and other folks most at risk in this moment. And I think even just to say about our health system and in our response, right, is that all of the measures that we're taking are, you almost none of them are available to folks who are incarcerated, to folks who are institutionalized in other ways in places like detention centers and in, in places where, for example, in New York State, where folks are using the labor of folks who are incarcerated, the state is using the labor of folks who are incarcerated, paying them something like 30 something cents per hour in making hand sanitizer that they themselves can't have access to because of the alcohol content or supposedly because of the alcohol content, right? right? There's a fund out there for getting soap through people's commissaries so that folks who are locked up, but that's something you have to buy, right? Which if you're is locked the, up. Yep, yep. And that's the frontline defense. So critical resistance is doing some really important work on this right now. And I encourage folks to follow their work if if you're not engaged with it. Um, yeah, so I, I just, I think that, and of course, the health responses for folks who are most marginalized, for sex workers, for drug users, for folks who are incarcerated, those are going to be the people who are even more than disabled folks and elders um, are going to be denied care, right? Right. Who who already face huge access to care issues for anyone who faces disparity in healthcare, whether it's being fat, whether it's being a person of color, whether it's being a sex worker, you know, all of these things are going to show up in this moment and be amplified. And we have to be really careful about that um, and do whatever we can to advocate. 
against right. it. Right. I mean, it just reinforces how critical the role of mutual aid and alternative systems is. It's, you know, as you said, closer to the top of this recording, that um, that when we enter a war zone mentality around saving people, you know, that is when really ideological decisions are being made about whose life is worth saving. Mm -hmm. And we know enough about American society to know that we cannot trust um, a U.S.-based ideology for making that determination. Mm -hmm. And so (laughs) keeping, keeping those decisions as much as possible you know, out of the realm of possibility and also in our own community's hands, I think is, is also how we ensure that we're surviving in a way that we want to, Mm -hmm. not just surviving for the sake of surviving, which turns me to, oh, go ahead. No, it's okay. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to, you know, land it and say, (laughs) (laughs) this, this uh, final question that I wanted to ask you, which is about like, you know, taking a really zoomed out view and thinking about like visionary possibilities. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to know what you think the broader impact of this moment could be, you know, it's so clear that this time in our society is going to fundamentally alter how we function, but we don't really know in what ways yet. A friend, a friend of mine texted recently saying, you know, this is so much bigger than I'm able to see something is ending and something is being born and I don't think either is visible. And so I, I'm thinking in terms of community and collective sight Mm -hmm. that there are things that each of us can see or possibilities that each of us can see from our unique vantage points. And I'm wondering what you see. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I will briefly say that part of what I see is a wave of collective guilt and grief of this moment that's already happening and that I think will be so much bigger, Um, you know, because I think that we will all lose people and we won't be able to grieve them in the ways that we've become accustomed to. I think that that it will be a huge source. One thing that I'm already seeing changing though, is that as I've had loved ones in quarantine, as many people I know and care about are, have COVID-19 already, you know, that it's been a moment of letting people know how much we love them, right? Mm-hmm. Like how romantic my friendships have become of I've been sending one of my best friends love songs as she's been in quarantine, oh. you know? And it's been, it's been this moment of just profound care, right? Like people checking in on me, me checking in on each other, like, just not taking anything for granted. I went outside the other day for the first time in over a week and I got to see three violets blooming on my little street in Brooklyn, which is normally, you know, there's dog shit. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Just seeing those three violets was like, what a miracle. Yeah. And I, I think that I'm I taking things for granted. I don't think that those of us who have been adults through this period will take as much for granted. I hope that we don't ever again. Yeah. And I think too that, you know, I think we're looking at at least three years of really serious economic depression and people who've never questioned their economic security will be living in poverty and people who have always lived in poverty will have that worse and that that's a time to learn from people who've already been making a way out of no way for a really long time i had a wonderful exchange with somebody who's been locked up on um, instagram the other day uh glennie brown and we were just talking about you know the way that folks like sex workers and folks who've been locked up like know how to do things like boil water with a nail and a wire, right? Or who know all about already the value of wipes and alcohol in preventing transmission of diseases, right? And so I think that centering the wisdom of all kinds of folks in this moment will be really powerful. The other things, I think that lots of people who haven't done mutual aid before 
are doing it now yes. and are organizing now. And I think yes. that that's incredible and powerful, like to see all these mutual aid groups happening. And yeah, I know some people who are involved with them, but like a lot of people I've never met, you know, and like New York is a big town, but it's not that big. That's unusual. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I love that. And I think that there's also like, I think that here is my wildest dream of this moment, because this is a moment for wild ass dreams. Tell me your wildest dream. It, this is a moment where we finally fucking get socialized medicine out of it. Right. Oh my where God. For real. Where we finally get a universal basic income. Right. I think that that like where we finally move money away out of war making and into our collective resilience. And I don't know, look, no, electoral politics are not my thing, right? But mm -hmm. I think we can be very, very clear on how much this moment has come from our current administration and its failures. Absolutely. And so I do hope that the conditions of organizing will shift in November. Like we're going to organize against the state no matter what, but who we're organizing against could change. Yes. And I, I, I hope that that happens. And I think I feel really excited about the collective wisdom that's sharing. I also fucking hope that we start to realize that so many things can be done over the internet and that that will create more accessibility for disabled and chronically ill people. Yes. I mean, this has been one of the things that's been so fascinating to watch, right? Like all the things that workplaces said were never possible, that right. the government said was never possible, like guaranteed paid sick time and, you know, guaranteed payments from the government and working remotely, like suddenly all these things are becoming possible that those same workplaces, institutions and corporations were claiming were not possible or not even politically feasible. Right. And I, I, so I agree with you. I think that that is one of the shifts that we're going to see that like once, once us folks get a, get a sense of what is possible here, there's not going to be any going back. And I, I love the idea of 2020 being the year that everyone becomes an organizer, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, because we have to. Regardless right? of social location. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I want to share a sweet little note before we end, which is, you know, the in terms of these, like, extensions of love that you were naming that um, my sweetie and I had a FaceTime date um, a few days ago with their roommate who is self-quarantined. And we ended the call. We were like saying how we wish we could all hug each other. And their roommate like put her hand over her heart and was like, maybe this can be our gesture that, that signals a hug, like a virtual hug. Mm. And I wanted, I'm like telling everyone like, yes, hand over heart when you're on a video <laughs> screen, <laughs> it can be like virtual, virtual hug sign. This is so um, funny. Cause I feel like you and I have been doing that forever. Like I know. You think about <laughs> I mean, you yeah. know, it's like in, in like, what is, I mean, I love also thinking about what are some of the shared languages that are going to yeah. like come out of. Yes. this moment where we have to find ways of like new languages, new love languages mm -hmm. right. across distance. Yeah. Um, I love you. And I'm so like uh, beyond pleased that I get to be having this conversation with you in this moment and can't imagine a better person to talk to at the end of one world and the beginning of the next. Um. So thank you so much for like being in this conversation with me and I just love you so much. And I'm like um, praying on your safety and everyone's safety in this time. I love you so much, Autumn. And same for you and your people and our people, you know, I think that this moment is one that is terrifying and transformative and I'm grateful to get to be it in it, in extended community with folks like you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. 
Thanks for tuning in to the Apocalypse Survival mini-series of How to Survive the End of the World. Upcoming episodes will look at medicine and healing where there is no doctor, food and water on the run, digital security, growing food, and more. In our next episode, we will continue the conversation on sheltering in place with a special focus on housing. We'll feature my interview with longtime squatter, housing activist, and prison abolitionist Vicki Law about how to turn abandoned buildings into homes and defend your right to stay there. How to Survive the End of the World is on Twitter and Instagram at End of the World PC. We're also on Facebook at End of the World Show. You can make a sustaining donation to our show by visiting our page at patreon.com slash endoftheworldshow. There's no better time than now to support our podcast. The more our listeners give, the more of this critical content we can produce and get out into the world. Another incredibly helpful thing you can do to help our show sustain itself is write us a review on Apple Podcasts if you are an iPhone person. How to Survive the End of the World is produced and edited by the incomparable Zach Rosen. Music for today's show comes from Tunde Alaniran and Mother Cyborg.